So good evening, good evening. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome to Daring Dialogues. I'm your host tonight, Shantae Charles. We are nearing and rounding up into our final episodes for this season. Counting tonight, we are down to six episodes left. And I want to give you a heads up because next Friday, which will be our 100th episode, we are going to be doing, I'm going to be doing some giveaways. So if you want to participate in those giveaways on Monday, I will be announcing how you can participate in those giveaways and be eligible for the things that I will be giving out. There are some specific things that you'll have to do. I'm also going to post those requirements on the Daring Dialogues IG as well as the Daring Dialogues Facebook page. So that way, if you want to participate, you will have all week to fill the requirements and then I will be doing some drawings on Friday. So let's hop into it. We know that Fridays for us is Business Friday and Healthy Wealthy Wise. We have been, we really almost finished up the financial book that we were in. But as I said, if you want to purchase that book and read the last two chapters, I highly recommend that. Very powerful book, Financial Freedom, Our Only Hope by Jeremiah J. Brown. I want to introduce you to the two books that we'll be reading for season 10, at least for the first part of it. Um, We're going to try to get through it as as much as we possibly can. But if you want to go ahead and get these books so you'll be set up for season 10, which as the Lord wills, will be starting probably around September. I'm looking at September as the time that I'll be back for season 10. So that'll give you an opportunity to check out these books And if you want to add them to your collection or if you want to read ahead, you'll have an opportunity to do that before we start discussing them for season 10. So the first book is for Fridays, The Whiteness of Wealth by Dorothy A. Brown, How the Tax System Impoverishes Black Americans and How We Can Fix It. Again, this will be part of our reading at the beginning of season 10 on Fridays. The Whiteness of Wealth by Dorothy A. Brown. The second book we're also going to be looking at is Get Good With Money by Tiffany Alice, also known as the Budget Nista. Many people are aware of her. They've probably seen her in Facebook ads. I know she's done some television uh, interviews. So people are probably more familiar with the Budget Nista than they are with the other young lady. But these are the two books that we'll be reading on Fridays for season 10. Now, Let's get into tonight's reading because we are going to continue looking at genetics and looking at neuroscience into season 10. These are the books that we have been reading from. One is entitled 32nd Genetics. For those of you who are like me, who love it all, (laughs) um, and you like science and you like the study of the brain, you like to, to study the origin of things, this is one of the books that we've been reading from that we're going to continue tonight, and then also How the World Works, Neuroscience. I am currently reading a book on trauma and neuroscience and the neuroplasticity of the brain, and this book and that book actually kind of go together, but we'll probably be reading from that on our Relationship Wednesdays because it's entitled 
what happened to you. And so it's dealing with our childhood, it's dealing with addressing the root causes of trauma, it's dealing with um, our, our experiences and how it shapes our brain. So we'll be reading that on Wednesdays. Tonight we're going to look at the plasticity of the brain, one side of the brain versus the other, the notion of having two minds, who's in charge, and we're going to end with talking about left-handedness. And this is great because I'm left-handed. If you're a lefty, put some hearts up there. Tap tap the little hearts for me so I can see you if you're left-handed. Um, but this writer says something in here that was like an aha moment for me because I actually experienced it. So we're going to start tonight with the neuroscience section of our reading. The plasticity of the brain. Call plasticity, the brain's ability to adapt and change, lies behind recovery from brain damage. Neurons alongside those that are damaged have been shown to grow new connections and reroute the original processing path. So yes, you can rewire your brain and there are ways to do that. And we'll be talking about that on Wednesdays. In some cases, the corresponding area of the opposite hemisphere can take on the functions of damaged parts, too. Recovery relies on rehabilitative therapy, which must begin early and be followed rigorously to reinforce the new pathways. Brain imaging techniques can show which parts of the brain have taken over functions originally performed by the part that has been lost. English neurologist John Hewlings Jackson was interested in the fact, noted even by Broca, that patients with aphasia are often able to curse fluently even when they lose the ability to make all other articulate utterances. He suspected that there is a distinction between automatic use of language, which might be centered in the right side of the brain, and thoughtful, intentional use of language focused in the left which could also manage automatic use. This meant that the two hemispheres were not wholly dissimilar, but the left took the lead in language. If lost, the right could pick up only the automatic use in which language is simply an emotional response rather than used to communicate meaning. Now somebody is about to be hot with what he just said. (laughs) Cause essentially he just said, That when you curse, (laughs) you're using a different side of your brain. You're using the side of your brain that is language that is simply an emotional response rather than the side that's used to communicate meaning. Oops. (laughs) So when people tell me that, you know, that cursing is a form of intelligent communication. Well, that's not what the neurologists are saying. The neurologists are saying that's actually a different side of your brain that's working that language and it's based on an emotional response. So to all of my cursing friends out there, when you start regulating your emotions, guess what might also be regulated? How much you want to cuss somebody out. Let the church say amen. Jackson developed the idea that while volitional speech 
is localized at the front of the left side of the brain. Perception and making meaning of perception, navigating for example, are localized at the rear of the right side of the brain. He supported this with clinical evidence of patients who had suffered damage to the right side of the brain and could not recognize people or places. One of the patients conveniently died and an autopsy revealed a lesion in the rear part of the right temporal lobe. These findings fed into major debate about whether or not the left and right hemispheres are functionally distinct. The earliest known speculation about this is found in an anonymous treaty thought to be based on the ideas of Diocles of Carcetus, a Greek physician of the 4th century BC. He, or at least the anonymous treaty, claimed that there are two brains in the head, that on the right is responsible for perception and that the left is responsible for understanding. The heart was also involved in keeping with the prevailing beliefs of the Greeks at the time. Even so, the thinking until the 19th century was that the two hemispheres were pretty much equivalent in form and function. In 1865, Broca explicitly stated that speech is localized in the frontal lobe on the left-hand side. This had an impact on separate but related controversies, whether functions are localized in the brain, whether the two hemispheres are different or identical, and how they relate to each other. Prior to these findings, the assumption was that the two sides of the brain were equivalent and independent organs, just as the left and right eyes or ears are equivalent and can operate independently. In the 18th and early 19th centuries, we saw a new idea that was gaining ground. In 1780, Maynard Dupuy proposed that we have two minds, one in each hemisphere, just as we have other paired organs and body parts. In 1826, Carl Burdick suggested that the two parts are joined by the corpus callosum, a broad bundle of nerve fibers that runs between the two hemispheres. In 1840, Henry Holland, who was a private physician to Queen Victoria, wrote about the double nature of the brain. He stressed that the bundles of nerves called commissures joining the two hemispheres act to keep the two halves working cooperatively. In this model, imbalance between the hemispheres or failure to communicate between them could lead to mental illness or madness. This interpretation relied on a physicalist view of madness, a physical dysfunction of the brain rather than a disorder of the spirit. So who's in charge? Contemplation of the two sides of the brain soon turned to the small difference in size typically found between the hemispheres and handedness, whether someone prefers to use their left or their right hand. In the mid-19th century, the French psychologist Pierre, Pierre Gratelet and Francois Luray claimed that the left hemisphere developed ahead of the right and weighed a little more during development. This assumption was that this gave it a head start in claiming dominance, so most people are right-handed. During the last decades of the 19th century, brain asymmetry was even co-opted into shoring up the European white male's claims to superiority. It was commonly believed and found by some studies of dubious rigor that the degree of brain symmetry correlates with intelligence or mental development. 
So humans have asymmetric brains, but lesser animals have increasingly symmetrical brains as we go down the evolutionary tree. More provocatively, it was argued that, quote, inferior races and women have more symmetrical brains than white men and children have more symmetrical brains than adults, leading to this sort of hierarchical um, idea of people and where they fit in the chain of intellectual astuteness, right? British physician John Ogle concluded that symmetrical convolutions of the infant brain must become asymmetric as the brain is developed through education. It doesn't seem to have occurred to him that this undermines the point about the inferiority of women in other races who had not benefited from the same education at the time as white males. The interest in asymmetry led to many studies comparing measurements of both skull and brain to determine whether one hemisphere was usually larger than the other. Some found the left hemisphere to be marginally larger than the right. Now, a lot of us are familiar hopefully, with the story of Dr. Jekyll and Hyde, correct? If you are, just put some hearts on the screen. In Robert Louis Stevenson's novella, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, written around 1886, the author explores the idea of two distinct personalities housed in a single individual. While the respectable Henry Jekyll is a well-rounded and mostly good, moral, and intelligent individual, his alter ego, Mr. Hyde, is gross, immoral, violent, and entirely self-serving. The parallel with ideas about the left and right sides of the brain is clear. Hyde acts as though mad, and although initially his expression is under Jekyll's control, he eventually surfaces spontaneously and becomes increasingly difficult and finally impossible to suppress. So, left-handed stutterers, and this really stood out to me because I know um, that initially I was left-hand dominant, and I remember distinctly for several years my mother literally trying to beat me into right-handedness, and I don't know if she realized, right? Because there were all these, and probably some people still believe this in some cultures, there were all of these superstitions around the fact that if your child was left-handed, something was wrong with them. Or if your child was left-handed, they were evil. (laughs) Or they had a propensity to to evil because left-handedness in some cultures meant that there was some kind of curse um, in the family. Again, these were believed superstitions that had very real consequences for children who were left-handed. I grew up in, I was born in the 70s. So this was culturally a thing. And I would hear people say, oh, she's left-handed. Oh, you've got to, you got to deal with that. You got to get that out of her. So to this day, I am now ambidextrous because I was, as a child, tried, they tried to make me right-handed and I am dominantly left-handed. But the other thing that I also remember is I also remember early on in elementary school that I had to be taken out of my classes and I had to go to speech therapy. Um, they had to teach me how to 
not stutter. I remember that. And then also when I talked, my tongue would stick out of my mouth. So they had to teach me how to speak (laughs) while holding my tongue behind my teeth. Okay. So I want to read this because yeah, Please, if you have children, please stop trying to force them into a certain handedness, especially if your child is very young. Please stop doing that. Just this is my request tonight. After Philip Boswood Ballard stated that enforced change of handedness could lead to stuttering, numerous studies from the 1920s to the 1960s supported his findings. Then the theory was denounced as only an urban myth. Despite quite good evidence from the 20th century studies, and this this theory fell out of favor. Recent brain imaging studies, however, have resurrected the idea, finding that stuttering is related to a disturbed transmission of signals between the left and right hemispheres. So when you're doing that and you're trying to force a certain handedness on your child, you are jacking up. The signals going between the left and the right hemispheres. Can we not do that? Can we can we not do that to the children? Okay? Because they're going to remember like I do. And some of them may not wind up ambidextrous like I am. Some of them just may wind up with lots of anger and resentment about it. So let's not do that to children. All right. Last section. All's wrong, that's right. The consensus that a dominant and larger left side of the brain was the mark of the civilized and educated man put the right side of the brain in an embarrassing position. It suggested that a larger right side was the mark of an uneducated idiot or savage, which was exactly the conclusion that some people began to draw. In 1879, French neuroanatomist Jules Louis said, in madness, the right side of the brain was larger than the left. He located base instincts in the right side of the brain. It became commonplace to associate the left side with morality and intellect and the right side with melancholy and irritation at best and with immorality at worst. Some people believed that the inequality of the hemispheres could be addressed and that the right hemisphere could even be educated into better ways. Charles Edward Brown Sagard, a neurologist from Mauritius, suggested a program of education which encouraged children to use their left and right hands alternatively and equally, as he believed an increase in use of the left side of the body would prompt the growth and moral development of the right side of the brain. Another more widespread practice was to try to force left-handed children to use their right hands instead. That's me. (laughs) The first practice fell to criticism by James Crichton Brown, who said that the history of civilization was founded on right-handedness and we should leave well enough alone. The second practice continued into the late 20th century, despite the publication in 1912 of evidence that forcing right-handedness was both unsuccessful and detrimental and could lead to stammering. Interestingly, in 1906, J. Herbert Claiborne suggested that dyslexic children should be encouraged to develop left-handedness 
in an attempt to jumpstart the right side of the brain into taking over the lexical functions that the left-hand side was clearly messing up. Once the principles of localization and distinction between the hemispheres were generally accepted, more and more abilities came to be associated with particular locations or sides of the brain. One important step on the way to further functional localization was the work of German neurologist Corbinian Broadman. Investigating the structure and history of brain tissue, he drew up a map of 52 acres of divided area between 11 histological regions, that is, showing differences in the tissue. His method was based on cytoarchitectural organization of neurons in the cortex. In other words, the arrangement of types of neurons, the way they lie, and how they are stacked in layers. Subsequent neurologists have redefined and refined the areas, but Broadman's remains the most widely used system. Subsequent studies have correlated several of the areas with particular functions. As well as the principles themselves, the 19th century had established the practice of using dysfunction and autopsy as ways of understanding normal function. In the days before brain imaging technologies, it was easiest to deduce which parts of the brain do what when they ceased or failed to do it. Correlation between cognitive or failure, physicals, and brain lesions provided the only empirical evidence of brain function available. This would not change until the 20th century when sophisticated brain imaging technologies finally allowed detailed mapping of brain activity. Mm-hmm. So, that is what I wanted to share tonight. If you have had any experiences, experiences with being left-handed or even being right-handed and someone trying to change your handedness, please comment below. Last piece here, not just a mushy blob. With the development of better microscopy came new techniques using special dyes or stains to show up the individual structures within cells. And anatomists began to discern differences between areas of the cortex. They mapped out 200 structurally discrete areas. The discovery that the brain is not structurally homogeneous reinforced the idea that functions are localized with different structures supporting different types of brain activity. Your brain is not just a mushy blob. Now, lastly, there is one common myth that we must discuss before we move on to our final piece, which is on genetics tonight. The lazy brain. I know I have heard this, you have probably heard this, but let's see what's actually true. There's a commonly repeated myth that we use only 10% of our brains. If you've heard that, put some hearts on the screen. It is not clear where this originated, but it can be seen in advertisements and self-help brochures from the late 19th century onward. It is frequently used now in similar contexts and to promote practices and products that claim to unlock or access our brain power. But it is entirely a myth. Investigation of the brain with modern scanning techniques can find no significant part of it that is inactive under a range of stimuli even in our sleep. Damage to the brain causes problems at least in the short term until routes around the damage are established. 
No one would opt to lose 90% of their brain on the basis that they would be fine with 10%. Finally, evolution would not allow us to waste so much of an organ that is so expensive to run. The brain is around 2% of our body weight, but uses 20% of the oxygen we consume. It is most certainly doing something with all of that oxygen. So if you've heard the lazy brain myth, know that it is not true. On next week, um, Friday, we'll read a little bit on a bundle of nerves, the nerve workings of the brain. Finally, we're moving back to our book on genetics and we're going to look at gene expression and then I'm going to turn it over to you all. Gene expression. Nearly all the cells in your body share the same DNA, yet each cell type is equipped for a specific biological function. It turns out that not all of your cells read all the genetic information in the genome at the same time. Your DNA contains all the information needed to make more than 25,000 different proteins, but each cell makes only the proteins it requires to function and will read just a fraction of all genes at a given time. To make a protein, cells have to transcribe the DNA information into RNA and then translate it into the protein. Researchers say that genes are either expressed or turned on or repressed, turned off. Upstream of each gene, there is a piece of DNA called the promoter, which works like a kind of switch to turn transcription on or off. There are many regulatory mechanisms to make sure that the switch is on at the right time and that each gene is expressed at the right level for that particular cell function. There are particular proteins that can recognize the switches and regulate the amount of RNA produced. The cell can also control gene expression by determining how quickly the RNA is degraded. Gene expression. So each cell expresses only a fraction of all the genes in the genome so that it makes the right protein for your cellular needs. And somebody is going to tell me that we don't have a creator. I beg to differ. Today, researchers have sophisticated technologies to measure all the thousands of genes that can be expressed at the same time. By performing gene expression profiling, they can make predictions about the identity of a cell and the functions of the genes that are expressed together. Some essential genes are expressed in most cells, whereas others are expressed only in very specialized tissue. So, I'm going to take give you a look at the image here. This is a heat map. All right. And heat maps such as these shown here are used to study how genes are expressed in various experiments. So you've got a nice little wonderful, colorful, detailed party happening on the inside of you. You have things being transcribed and translated so that your body can be fed the proper proteins to make the proper cells do what they need to do inside of your body. All of this is happening all, all the time. You've got a nice uh, 
Google translation setup going on in your body. And somebody thinks that all of this is just happening by randomness. All right. So that is my spiel on tonight. If you would like to come on and you'd like to have some conversation with me, either about gene expression, about the brain, about left-handedness, right-handedness, your own experiences, please feel free to hit the camera and I will bring you on. If you are listening by Anchor tonight, I want to thank you for your time and attention. Feel free to uh, leave me a voice recording and I will get back with you. Take care and God bless. Thank you.